Turn with me to Luke 15. We're going to be starting there in verse 1. Luke 15, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to actually read the whole chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, The younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and treated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear your word. That as we look at these parables that Jesus told, as we look at this setting and this scene and what's happening here as Jesus shows off the love of his dad for his people, pray that you would give us eyes to see, 
Give us ears to hear your word, that we would see the great, passionate, joyful love you have for your people. The way you seek the lost, you're not reluctant to save us. You're eager to do so. Pray that we would understand you properly, that you would be exalted, that we would be people who are repentant, who look to you. Father, we pray if there are any here now who are not looking to you, any here who are sitting on the fence, we pray, Father, that you would help them see the glory of your Son, the picture he is of your great love for us, and they would look to him and be saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start just by looking at verse 1. Here's the thing with, with this text. This chapter, Jesus tells three parables. He tells three parables addressing a particular audience, and that audience has two parts to it. I don't want to spend a lot of time giving you a long introduction or spend a lot of time giving you a whole bunch of sort of hook. The fact is that this story, all on its own, hooks you. It's so powerful that I feel like I'm going to really sort of blur the power of it by spending too much time giving you a lot of introduction. So I just want to start by looking here and considering the scene as we jump into these parables. Look there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Now I want to stop there for a minute and consider what's being said. The tax collectors are the people who are considered as those who have betrayed their people. These are the people who actually bid on the right to be able to help Rome oppress their own people. They took money they had, they went to the Roman government, they bid on the right to collect taxes from Rome so that they could, or from the people, so that they could get a cut of that from the Roman government. We will help you fund your soldiers, we will help you oppress our own people, and you give us a profit for that. You could imagine what that was like if we had a foreign country invade us and conquer us and begin to tax us so that they could raise up more soldiers to keep us oppressed, and you saw your friends and neighbors taking the money they have and going out and buying the right to be able to participate in making money off of you, enriching themselves by helping oppress you, you may not like those people much. That's who the tax collectors are in this culture. They're the scum of the earth. They're the bottom of the barrel. They're as bad as it gets. They're the traitors. So here they are, and the sinners. We're all drawing near, to hear, near him to hear him. Now, who are the sinners? The sinners incorporate all of those people who are the cast-offs. The people that no one wants to have anything to do with. The prostitutes. The people who pay for prostitutes. The drunks. The people who do not walk according to the law. The people who do not walk in a way that pleases the religious establishment. These are the sinners. Those two groups who really should be comprised really is one group of people. That group of people who have rejected the Lord and who live in abject sin in front of everybody. Those people are gathering near or drawing near. Now, Catch this, to hear him. They want to hear Jesus. Now how does that tie to the passage we've just looked at? Because if you look, remember in Luke 14, Jesus is coming after the religious leaders. And he's coming after them for their pride. He's coming after them for their self-exaltation. He's coming after them because they don't care about the Lord or other people. He comes after them because he says to them, listen, we, I prophesied to you in the Old Testament. We told you there was this great feast coming. We invited you to this great feast, and when the great feast has come, now that I'm here, now that God's kingdom has arrived in me, you're not interested. You have excuses. You have better things to do. So I'm going to go, and I'm going to find the blind and the lame and I'm going to find the people who you've rejected, the people who are homeless and who are in need. I'm going to go find those people, and I'm going to bring them to the wedding, and they're going to feast with me. And the crowds continue to grow, and he turns to the crowds and says, wait a minute, 
I don't want you to get all this wrong. Even though I'm rebuking the Pharisees and you seem to like that, even though I teach with authority and you seem to like that, and even though I'm healing people and you seem to like that, I don't want you to make overly emotional decisions about me. I want you to think about what it means to follow me. I want your whole life. I don't want some of your life. I don't want to be an add-on to your life. I don't want to be a little piece of your life. I don't want to be one day of your life. I don't want to be 10% of your life. I want your whole life. You belong to me, all of you, or I don't want you at all. Think about this. Count the cost. I'm asking you for everything. And I'm telling you, once you've counted the cost, you will discover the cost is worth paying. Because, as Jesus is saying, I'm your great reward. And then Jesus ends all of that by saying this. The end of verse 35 of chapter 14. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, Jesus is giving a great call to discipleship. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the next verse, now see, you don't have chapter breaks and subdivisions in the original text. Okay? The next verse goes on, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Who was listening to God's call to discipleship? Who was willing to walk away from it all? To give him their whole life? Who wanted to be at the feast with him? The tax collectors and the sinners. They were the ones drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees, verse 2, and the scribes grumbled. See, they didn't want to hear the word of the Lord. They wanted to grumble about it. And what are they grumbling about specifically? They're grumbling that the tax collectors and the sinners are the ones drawing near to hear him. And they go on and say how they are grumbling. Look at their saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, I want you to hear what they're saying. This man, Jesus, is gathering to himself the dregs of the society. The very people that God would never accept This man is eating with them. And if you understand fellowship and communion and covenant with the Lord, all throughout when he's making covenants, he breaks bread with people. He eats with them. See, this man, in some way, is communing with the scum of the earth, the people who God would never have anything to do with because those people are dirty. Those people are sinful. Those people are unclean. You see, this man is down there at his house inviting the people over who are the very people that the rest of us think no way God would have any part with that person. That's who he's hanging out with and eating with. You know what's interesting about that is the Pharisees get Jesus right here, don't they? It's exactly what he's doing. But they're grumbling about it. So Jesus goes on to tell three parables to explain himself. And when, he, when he's explaining himself, he's saying to them, I want you to understand something. When you see me, when you see what I'm doing, you understand what I'm doing is explaining to you what the Father is like. You see, the Son has come to reveal the Father, hasn't he? He is the one who reveals the Father. And he's saying, I am showing you what the Father is like. And I want to tell you some parables about your father, about your father's passionate, joyful love for lost people. See, their failure to understand Jesus is also their failure to understand Jesus' dad. They don't get him. See, they think they get God, and Jesus has him wrong. And what Jesus is saying is, what you have wrong is my father. You don't just have me wrong, you have him wrong. They're right that he welcomes and eats with sinners. And they begrudge him for it because they don't understand his dad and they don't see their need for his dad. So I want to walk through the three parables and I want you to hear Jesus showing off the love of his dad and calling people to repent of their sin and turn to him. Look at verse 3. Here's the first parable. Because all three of these parables draw, drive at the same point, though with different nuances. So he told them this parable... Verse 4, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, 
if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it. See, a good shepherd is the kind of shepherd that pursues lost sheep. He's going to have a 99 sheep, one gets lost, the good shepherd is going to go out and he's going to go after him and he's going to put his life on the line to go and find that lost sheep. That's what good shepherds do. And Jesus knows you men care about your lost sheep, you're going to go after them. What man of you wouldn't do that? You would. If you're going to pursue a lost sheep, you don't think God's going to pursue a lost soul? And when he has found it, verse 5, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. I just think about this imagery. Here's the shepherd out, usually probably late at night at this point, going through all sorts of potential dangers in front of him as he goes looking for this lost sheep. And when he finds this lost sheep, this lost sheep at this point is going to be exhausted, likely wounded, and needed to be cared for. And he sees a lost sheep, and he has so much joy that he's found the lost sheep, that he picks the lost sheep up and puts him on his shoulders. And he carries him home, rejoicing. I found him. I found him. And he goes on to say this. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So I found him. Let's, let's rejoice. That's what a good shepherd does. These Pharisees have forgotten that the Lord says in Psalm 23, or that David's saying to the Lord, The Lord is my shepherd. He looks for lost sheep. They've forgotten what was prophesied to them in Ezekiel 34 when they refused to go after the lost sheep but were using their religion to build themselves up and letting the lost sheep wander. He says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Now think about this. You clearly don't know your father. It's what he's telling these Pharisees. Have you not read Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down by green pastures. He leads me beside, beside still waters. He prepares before me a table in the presence of my enemies. Have you not read any of that? That's who the Lord is. Haven't you read Ezekiel 34? He pursues his lost sheep. He goes after them. He makes them lie down. He cares for them. You don't know him. Just as you would go after a lost sheep, so my father goes after his loss. Just so, verse 7 of chapter 15, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. That's a circumlocution. That's a, that's a, a roundabout way of saying something. There will be more joy in heaven. In other, in other words, there will be more joy with the father. The father will be rejoicing. Will the angels be rejoicing too? For sure. But it's talking about the joy of the Father most specifically here. Be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What he's saying to them is, listen, you Pharisees and scribes don't recognize your need for the Father. You don't know you need him. You don't know what he's like. So you don't repent. You don't look to me in faith. And for Luke, so you understand, in Luke and Acts, repentance and faith are like interchangeable terms. Two sides of the same coin. You don't believe. 
You don't turn to me in faith. And God doesn't find any joy in the unrepentant. But man, he rejoices over the one who repents. He rejoices over the one who looks to me in faith, Jesus is saying. He finds great joy in saving the lost. Now it goes on. It goes on in verse 8 to tell a second parable. In case you didn't understand the first one. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, so you know a silver coin is um, about a day's wage. Okay, so you think about that. Maybe today that would, in our day, depending on how much money you make, that's a hundred bucks. Okay, depending on your income range. But just, just say about a hundred bucks. Average wage. Day's wage. Day's wage. What woman... Having 10 silver coins, uh, 10 silver coins, by the way, would be 10 days' wages. But if she lost one coin, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. You know what this is like. You lose something and you turn your house upside down to find it, right? Turn on all the lights, open all the drawers, go through all of your old clothes, rifle through the laundry. Maybe I'm just speaking about my personal experience. But you guys ever do this? Where's my wallet? Teresa must have lost it. (laughs) So anyway, you know how that goes. Go through my wife's purse, looking for that baby, right? You know what this is like. You'll look everywhere for it. Well, what woman having 10 silver coins if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, another circumlocution, another way to speak of this joy breaking out in heaven, first with the Father and with the angels. If you're a destitute woman and you lose a day's wage, You're going to search for it, aren't you? You're going to turn your house upside down to find it. You're going to go to every nook and cranny until you find that money because you need it so you can pay the bills. This isn't the kind of culture where people got to eat every day and they always had extra food in the pantry. This is the kind of culture where a day's wage fed you that day. You don't have that money, you don't eat that day. You're going to find it. And you're going to throw a party when you find it. And Jesus is saying, the Father's just like this. My dad is just like this. I'm just like this. I reveal him. I'm going to turn over every, every, every thing I have to. I'm going to rifle through everything I'm going to look in every crook or nook and cranny. I'm going to turn on every light. I'm going to search out for my lost sheep. I'm looking for them. I'm going to find that lost coin. It is my father's joy to find that lost sheep. Verse 11. One more parable for these dense Pharisees. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Now you guys have heard this parable, the prodigal son, numerous times. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. It's problematic a bit because it's actually about two sons. And the two sons correspond to the two audiences to whom Jesus is speaking in this chapter. And who's he speaking of? He's speaking of the tax collectors and sinners. That's one son. And he's speaking of the Pharisees and scribes. That's the other son represented in this parable. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them, that's representing the tax collectors and sinners. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Now so you understand this context, in this first century Hebrew context, when you said to your dad... I want the share of the property that's coming to me. You were asking for your inheritance. When do you normally get your inheritance? 
when your father dies. So for the younger son to say to his father, give me my share of the inheritance, which as the younger son would have been about a third of the property, so you know, give me my share of the inheritance, what he's saying to the father is, I wish you dead. I'm so impatient with your coming death that I just want it now. Give me my stuff now. I want nothing to do with you any longer. I'm done here. Give it to me. Now that's an insult, is it not? If you're a parent and your child comes to you and says, give me my portion of inheritance, I want you dead. And you're not dying soon enough for me, so just give me my part so I can get away from you. It's gonna break your heart as a dad, isn't it? As a mom, it's gonna break your heart. And that's what this young man does. And he divided his property between them, so the father gave him the property. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. So you know that's literally, he basically turned it all into cash. He sold all that he had. When he gathers it all, it's like he's gone and turned it to cash, some way that he can spend it quickly. Gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. He went to where the Gentiles live. Now, Now you need to imagine the insult this is to a Jewish man. Not only is my, my son taking his inheritance early, declaring that he wishes me dead, he's taken that property and all that we worked for as a family for all of these generations, and he turned it into quick expendable cash, and he went to where the Gentiles live, rejecting his people, rejecting the Lord of his people. He's gone off to live on his own in a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Later on, we're told by the older brother that this reckless living including, included spending his money on prostitutes. He went off and lived recklessly and spent his money on prostitutes. Spent it all. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. See, the problem is with sin is it promises a lot, but it always breaks your heart, doesn't it? And that's what happens to this man. He gets to the end of himself. He's completely bankrupt. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Now he's working for a Gentile as a slave in some way. This is even worse. Who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. So you understand that's an unclean animal in that culture. Just adding insult to injury. And he was longing to be fed with the, pi- the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Isn't that interesting? This guy's at rock bottom. You know who's there to help him? No one. The people he ran off to live in reckless living with? Where are they? Nowhere to be found. They've left him at the bottom. They're not interested in helping him. But when he came to himself, it's like his mind came back to him. Any of you have that moment in life? You finally come to yourself. What was I thinking? What am I doing? Why am I running after this? When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. In other words, I've sinned against God and you. Now, the father does stand for the father here, but this is also a parable. So the father also stands for a real live father at this point in time. So I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to tell him, I'm not worthy to be your son. Treat me as a hired servant. That's all I deserve, and he's right about that. But he's not quite right about who his father is. He's right that all he deserves is to be be an unworthy servant. He's wrong about the nature of how his father desires to treat him. And he arose, verse 20, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
his father saw him. See, Jesus tells us this parable. The father's looking for him. He's looking for his son. Where is he? He's watching for this lost son. This lost son who's humiliated him, he's looking for him. Where are you? Where is my son? I've got to find him. And he sees him, and he felt compassion. And he ran. Now, we don't understand the importance of this. See, we live in a culture now where we can get a little taste of it. If your child disobeys you, completely abandons the family, runs off and does their own thing, spends their life in reckless living, and comes back to you a mess, all your friends and neighbors are going to say of you, if you let him back in your house and start helping him back out, you're going to enable him. Right? So we understand this, and there may be some truth to that. I'm not trying to make a psychological point here, okay? I just want you to follow what happens. You're going to enable him. If you let him back in, you're going to be a stupid parent. He's just going to continue on in what he's doing. You need to give him tough love. And the father says, no, my, my, my child has changed. I know it. And I'm going to let him back in. And all the friends and neighbors go, you're a fool. You're a complete fool. Well, for this father in this town to have had this son do what he's done, And to be out looking for that lost son, and as soon as he sees him, he has compassion on him and runs to him, is to be a complete fool in that culture. And for him to run specifically because they wear long flowing robes, is to let those robes come flying up and to face total humiliation and shame in front of everyone as he runs to this lost son. And when he gets to him, what does he do? He gets to his son, and he ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. Throws his arms around him. Son, I'm so glad you're home. I've longed for you to come home. It gives me great joy to see you home. I'm willing to be shamed in front of the whole world to bring you home. Isn't that what Jesus does on the cross? It's for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising its shame. So that he could bring us home. And the son goes on after the father has kissed him. Verse 21, and said son to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he gets cut off before he can say, let me be one of your hired servants. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. See, his clothes are tattered. He's poor. He's a mess. Cover him up with my robes. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand. And shoes on his feet. You only got shoes if you were a son in the house. You only got the family signet ring if you were a son in the house. Treat him like one of my sons. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. This is a huge party. For why? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. See what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and scribes? Don't you understand? These tax collectors and sinners, these blind and lame, these outcasts, these Gentiles, these women, these people who you don't think are worthy of the Father are not worthy of the Father. But it is still the Father's joy to save them. That's who he is. He loves his people. He passionately pursues them. He isn't sitting back there reluctantly waiting for them to earn his approval. It isn't going to happen. They're not worthy. But he loves them anyway. 
and he rejoices to save them. Do you not understand your father? That's why he sent me, because I'm revealing him to you. I am seeking and saving the lost. I'm walking among you and doing all the things that you failed to do, keeping all the laws that you failed to keep, being tempted in every way as you are, yet without sin, because you failed miserably. I'm walking among you being the true son of God that you failed to be. You could never be a right son of God. And so I'm being that in your place. And I'm going to the cross and I'm paying your penalty. And I'm taking all your shame and guilt upon me. And why am I doing that? Because that's due to you. That's your shame and guilt. And I'm taking it on me. And I'm becoming a curse for you. And I'm paying the penalty of my father's wrath for you. And I'm rising from the dead for you, conquering sin and death, because you belong there. And I'm conquering it to save you. And I'm doing this because I want to. And the father sent me because he wants to, because here in his love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Why? So that we would be saved to gather up us. That's what the father's about. And he's saying to the Pharisees, you don't get him. You don't get him at all because you don't get me and I'm revealing him to you. He isn't reluctant to save you. It's what he's all about. Let's see the Pharisee's response. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. Now here's the thing, here's the Pharisee son. You're giving him my calf. That's my two-thirds. That belongs to me. You're having a party for him. That's my stuff. I'm angry. I've been a good boy all my life. And you're going to rejoice over this one? Haven't I earned better? Look what he goes on to say. His father came out and treated him. His father's looking for him. Looking for that lost son just like he was the other. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, literally the word is slaved for you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Look, I've earned the party. You haven't thrown one for me. I've slaved for you. I've done everything you asked. I was the good son Where's my party? Why are you giving him a party? But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father responds, son, said to him, son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. You don't understand, son. I've always offered you everything. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. See, there's two different kinds of lostness here, aren't there? There's the lost son who's like the sinners and tax collectors. He flees from God. He flees from doing what God would ever have him do to pursue his own end. He sees living with the Father as some, sort of, as some sort of binding of what he wants to do with his life. So he rejects him and flees him. And then there's the older son who represents the Pharisees and the scribes. He sticks around with dad. He does what his dad wants. He slaves for him. All along, doing it because he thinks he has to do it or else his father would have nothing to do with him. 
See, both sons have a problem because they both think that in some way, being having anything to do with the father is slavery. One wants to flee that slavery straight out by getting out and doing his own thing. The other one wants to stay in the slavery so he can get his own. But both of them are trying to get what they want. One of them repents and the other doesn't. One of them sees his need and the other doesn't. Which one are you? Do you see your need? Are you looking to Jesus in faith? Let me give you three signs that you don't know him at all, or at least that you're failing to fully believe the truth about Jesus and his dad. Just real brief, here's the first one. First sign that you either don't know him or you're failing to believe the truth. You flee him thinking freedom is being out from under his lordship. Hear that? You flee from him thinking that freedom is being out from under his lordship. You're like the younger son. You're you're falling prey to Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve, aren't you? Genesis 3, when Satan comes and says, God has given you everything, but he didn't give you that one tree, did he? See, he's stingy. He's holding something back from you. You know, life would be really good. I know it's good now, but it would be really good if you just had that fruit. And the Father is keeping it from you. So tell him off. Get rid of him. For although they knew God, they neither honored him as God nor gave thanks. Right? Exchanging the truth about God for a lie They worship the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. You see, you flee him. I don't want to keep God's law. Seems like it restricts all the things I want to do. You know what fundamentally that is? It's a failure to believe that your father's good and he's given you the law for your good because he loves you. You don't get saved by keeping his law, but believers, when you say to me, you know what? I've been justified, declared righteous by faith. I've been forgiven by Jesus. Don't come bringing me the law and take me back into legalism. When you say that, you misunderstand the nature of the law. Does the law convict you of sin and you lead your need for Christ? Yes, but the law is also good and holy and righteous. The law was given to you by the Lord to live by because he loves you. He doesn't bring you the law to restrain your freedom. He brings you the law to make you free in him so that you see it and go, this is what it means to please my father. This is what it means to walk with him. This is what it, because he's good and I believe he loves me and I want to walk with him and honor him. The failure to understand that is is basically the younger brother syndrome. I'm going to run off and make my own way because I don't believe he loves me. He's holding me back. That sin would sure be a lot of fun. Second, you believe the Father is reluctant to take you back. Here's a second sign. You believe the Father is reluctant to take you back. See, do you think you can only come back as a slave who works off his debt? Isn't it interesting that the younger brother wants to come back to the Father, but he thinks there's going to be some kind of reluctance in the Father. He's a bit surprised by the response of his Father. I'm going to come back as a slave, and I'm going to start earning my way back in with him. Do you really believe he comes and finds you and throws you on his shoulders and has a party? That he runs to you and embraces you and kisses you and puts a new robe on you? Do you believe that about him, or do you think he's reluctant? See, but I have all this sin. You don't know what I've done or what I've thought. How could he forgive me? Stop and consider who he is. He doesn't just sort of reluctantly say, okay, I'll let that one go. I'll overlook that one. He pursued you passionately. And by passionately, I don't mean he had an exciting emotional experience. By passionately, I mean he went to the cross and died for you. He sent his son for you. There's no reluctance in his saving you. 
can't wait to do it. You think, third sign, you think slaving for him merits you his favor. You think that slaving for him merits you his favor, especially when you compare yourself to others. That's how it shows up best. You know how you, you, you think slaving for him merits his favor? When you look around and you say, at least I'm a little better off than that person. Hypocrisy and judgmentalism and all of those things that flow out of the heart that is slaving for God to earn his favor who doesn't understand who their father is. That's where it comes out of. I think about the fact that we actually, and Sinclair Ferguson talks about this, one of the pastors, we actually treat people exactly the way we believe the Father deals with us. You want to know how you think the Father deals with you? Look around at how you deal with other people. Give you a good picture of how you think he deals with you. You look down your nose at people, judgmentally, think that they haven't earned their way back into his favor, Put on a face of hypocrisy. Show them a picture that isn't true. Then somehow you think that you need to, that the Father deals the same way with you. You need to earn your way back to him. You need to somehow pretend like you're something you're not. Or he won't accept you. Here's the bottom line. The Father won't accept you in and of yourself. He'll only accept you in his son, Jesus. And he wants to accept you in his son, So the question I have is, do you believe the Father is joyfully, joyfully, passionately pursuing you because of his great love for you? Or do you believe he's secretly someone whose love must be earned and who's waiting to smack you down or reward you based on your own merits? See, how do you know that happens, believers? When you're slipping, things go wrong in your life and you think, I wonder what I did that caused the Lord to bring this on me. Maybe you sinned in some way. But I'm afraid if I do this, he's just got this hammer back there and he is waiting to bring it out and swing it at me. Unbelievers, if you have the wrong view of the Father and the Son, you will not come to him for fear that he does not intend good for his people and thus you will selfishly pursue your own good. You will do this by being good or through rebellion You'll do it by being religious or by being irreligious. Either way, you're lost. But you won't look to Christ and you won't repent of your sins and sin and self-righteousness. You will flee from him or you will attempt to manipulate him like a tribal deity. I will get what I want from him by being good. Believers, the, the tendency to misunderstand the love of God doesn't end the moment you believe doesn't end the moment you're born again. Your, st- your heart still wanders back to false views of God. Doesn't it? Mine does all the time. If you have the wrong view of the Father and the Son, you'll never live in and serve in the freedom of knowing his love and his grace. You'll never serve him merely because you have the smile of your dad, but because you believe that somehow you have to earn his love. And even if you had to earn his love, that you could. He loves you because he's a great lover, not because you're lovable. And what will happen is you'll start to serve the Lord with the wrong motives. Here's what it looks like. I'll give you a picture. Spurgeon, um, Charles Spurgeon, who was a 19th century Victorian Baptist preacher, um, tells a story about um, a king. And what happens in the story is there's a carrot farmer, a poor carrot farmer, with a very small farm who farms one year the the best carrot he's ever farmed. And he goes to the king, takes the carrot, walks into the king's court, stands before the king, and presents the carrot to the king. He says, king, because of my love for you, I've brought you this carrot. I want to serve you. Because of the way you've cared for me, I've brought you this carrot. I want to serve you as my king. Here's the carrot. And then the carrot farmer begins to leave the king's chambers. And as he does, the king stops him and says, I, <clears throat> I thank you for this carrot, and here's what I want to do. I want to give you great lands that you've never owned, 
All these lands I'm going to give you are greater than anything you've ever had. I want to give you these great lands you've never owned. The carrot farmer says, thank you, and leaves at a rich man. One of the men standing in the court sees this. This man is a wealthier man. And he sees what this carrot farmer has done. And he thinks, that's what he got for a carrot? And he says, what will he give me for a horse? So he goes and gets his best horse, comes in before the king with his best horse, says, your majesty, I've brought you my best horse. And the king says, thank you for the horse, you're excused. And the man says, wait a minute. I brought you my best horse and you give me nothing in return? That carrot farmer brought you a carrot and you enriched him with many lands. How come you're not giving me anything for my best horse? I gave you my best horse. He gave you a carrot. And the king looked at the man and said, that man brought me his best carrot. You brought yourself your best horse. You understand the point of this parable? When we as believers start misunderstanding the love of our Father for us, we start trying to manipulate him with our good works rather than serve him because we're his sons. We start to misunderstand what he's like. Jesus is a picture of what the Father's like. It's what he's trying to get across to these religious people. I'm the picture of what the Father's like. Trust me. We need to do the same. We need to remember who he is. And if you're an unbeliever, you know it's your Father's joy to save you. Turn to him and believe and you will be saved. Let me pray. Father, we ask... We ask that as we consider who you are, who your son pictured you to be, how he revealed you with his life and death and resurrection, Father, we repent. We ask that you would help us repent of our false views of you, of our lack of trusting your love your graciousness to us, of our self-righteousness and hypocrisy, judgmentalism. Father, we pray that we would trust your son rightly, that we would recognize truthfully who you are. Father, we pray for anyone here who does not know Jesus, who is not looking to him now, who is still fleeing from you, whether they're fleeing from you through wild abandonment to sin or they're fleeing from you through religiosity. Father, we pray that you would wake them up to their need for your son, Jesus, that they would be saved, that you would wake them up to your great love for them in Christ, that they would be saved. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.